Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Israel is dead and needs new life so she can respond to God. She is blind and needs new eyes so she can see the light. She is mute and needs new lips so she can speak God's praise both to God and to the world. This is the message of the final four of ten miracles Matthew focuses on in chapters 8 and 9 of his gospel. This is Israel's condition after centuries of God's grace and blessing. She needs a new kind of deliverer and a new kind of salvation. She needs Jesus. And so does the world. Israel, you see, was a priestly nation, which does not simply mean that she was really religious. It means that she, as a microcosm of the human race, represented the human race. Thus, Israel's condition is the world's condition, and that is helpless. And Israel's need is the world's need, and that is Jesus. Only Jesus, God in the flesh, God on the cross, God raised from the dead, only Jesus can help the helpless, give hope to the hopeless, and save the unsavable. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we come in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 9, verses 18 down through 35. Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 35. This is the word of God. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. He said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, 
He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went around about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. God and Father, we pray now by the Spirit that you would open your word to us, that we would know what it meant in the first century, and that we would know what it means to us now, what you would have us to be and to do, to sing your praises, and to bear your witness to the world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come today to the final four signs of ten signs that Matthew focuses in on in order to show that Jesus is the new Moses. And he's not just the new Moses, he's greater than Moses. He not only speaks with greater authority than Moses and acts with greater authority than Moses, he speaks with absolute authority and he acts with absolute authority. In fact, the only one in the scriptures who speaks and acts with the authority that Jesus does is God himself. And that is Matthew's point, that the new Moses is God in the flesh, come to deliver his people. So Matthew, out of all the different miracles Jesus does, and he refers to lots of them, but he picks ten to focus in on specifically. And that is because Moses did ten great signs and wonders to deliver Israel from Egypt. And Matthew is bringing this point that Jesus is the new Moses who is going to bring about the true deliverance. And the ten that he picked aren't necessarily the most dramatic, uh, uh, the most eye-catching. For example, one of the ten is his healing of Peter's mother-in-law who simply had a fever. So what that means is that Matthew has a point to these. He is teaching us something. These are not just real events that happened to real people who needed really healing and Jesus did heal them, but there was also teaching that was being acted out through these various miracles. And indeed, these last four of the ten miracles depict Israel as a whole. For all of these people represent not just themselves, but they represent the condition of Israel. So Matthew is drawing to conclusion here a very pointed set of conclusions about the condition of Israel and why she needs to be saved. And because Israel is a priestly nation, which means not just that she's a particularly religious nation, it means that she's a representative nation. She is a people who represent all people. Because Israel is a priestly nation representing all of mankind as a kind of microcosm, these last four signs also show the true condition of mankind and why all people need to be saved and what we need to be saved from. Now, as we look at these four miracles, we see that the first two, where he returns to life, the ruler's daughter, and he heals the woman with the 12-year flow of blood, are intermingled in the narrative. First, the ruler comes to Jesus and says that his daughter has died, but if Jesus lays his hand on her, she will live. And while he is going to heal her, Then the woman with the 12-year flow of blood comes up behind Jesus, thinking, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And so she is healed, and then Jesus continues on the journey and heals the ruler's daughter, uh, bringing her back to life. And this means that we're supposed 
to consider these together. They make the same point. Now, both of these are really representative people. In the Old Testament, the rulers of the people summed up the people. They stood for the people. And like the ruler's daughter here, Israel needs resurrection. That is the point. It's not just one ruler's daughter in Israel who needs to be brought to life. It is Israel who needs to be brought to life. And that's exactly Jesus' point to Nicodemus in in the very famous John chapter 3. When he says to him, you must be born again, in the Greek the word you is not you singular, it's you plural. It's ye, you all, y'all need to be born again. Israel needs new life. Israel is dead and needs resurrection. Because only new resurrected life, free from sin, can heal Israel. Well, why is that? And that's when the woman with the 12-year flow of blood comes in. Twelve is the number of Israel in the Old Testament because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And because the 12 tribes of Israel have death within, as depicted by the woman with the 12-year flow of blood, Israel cannot bear the fruit of life. She cannot heal herself. Her problems are not primarily outside of herself. Matthew keeps associating sin with sickness in these various miracles, not in the modern wellness gospel sense. You know, there are strains of Christianity out there today that think that if you're sick, if you've got a cold, it's because you've sinned in some way. And they also tend to think that if you're not rich, you're not doing something right. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. But Matthew associates sin with sickness here to help us understand the nature of sin. That sin is like an inner sickness that affects all of us. And our individual sinful acts are simply outward symptoms of our inner sickness. As a result of the death that is within Israel, Israel is blind. And that's what is depicted by the two blind men. She cannot see the truth. She cannot see the way of life even when it is standing in her midst as it is in the person of Jesus. Israel is also mute, having been infected by Satan. She cannot speak true worship and praise to God. God says you draw near with your lips, but your hearts are far away. And that's the same thing that Jesus told Israel. You're not truly worshiping God. She cannot speak true worship to God, and she cannot speak true witness to the nations. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations, but the effect of Israel and her life, Paul records for us in Romans chapter 1, he says, the nations blaspheme because of you. And so these two mute men who are demon-possessed, who are infected by Satan, are also a picture of Israel. Now, two in Scripture is the number of worship and the number of witness. The number of worship and the number of witness. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, the Holy Spirit manifests Himself as tongues of fire over each disciple. But it's not just tongues of fire, it's cloven tongues of fire. It's two. A tongue of fire divided into two. And after the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, what is the first thing we see them do? First, they are giving praise to God. They're giving glory to God. They're worshiping God. 
And the next thing they're doing is bearing witness to God. And we see that these two things go together. It's not like worship is over here and then witness is over here. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Giving thanks to God and bearing witness to God are really all part of the same whole. Throughout the Old Testament, we're often told in judicial cases that everything must be established by two or three witnesses. That's the number of witness. Uh, We're also told by Jesus that where even two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in their midst. It's the number of worship. And so these two men are mute, having been affected by Satan. And it's a picture of Israel who cannot truly speak the worship of God, nor true witness to God. Now Israel has been in this condition by the first century. Israel has been in this condition for a long time, for centuries. The law and the prophets pointed the way, but could not successfully change Israel's heart. It could not change Israel's inner condition. Not even the miracles worked by the prophets could do that nor even the ten great miracles worked by Moses and the deliverance worked by Moses in the Exodus. Not even that was sufficient to change Israel's inner condition. And we might ask ourselves, why did God drag out this tragic drama for so many centuries? Why didn't He bring Jesus into the picture earlier? Well, point of the, part of the point of dragging this out is to establish the very hopelessness of Israel's condition. Israel with all of her privileges. Israel with God in her midst. Israel with God's word continually given to her. She had God's law. She had the prophets always sent to her. She had God's temple, the house of prayer. She had all these privileges. She didn't need to wonder what God's will was. She didn't need to wonder about the best way to live. She didn't need to wonder about any of those things, and yet Israel herself is in a hopeless condition. It is only once God has established the absolute hopelessness of Israel and mankind, because of Israel's in that condition, what does that say about everybody else? It's only once God has established the utter hopelessness of Israel and the human race that the world is ready for the incarnation the divine scandal that scandalized the ancient world. Most people then and today who reject the Incarnation reject it not because of the miraculousness of it, but they reject it out of hand because it's scandalous to think of God becoming a person. This divine scandal by which the Creator God enters into the creation and becomes a man without ceasing to be the Creator God. And then the Creator God goes to the cross. It is God as man. God on the cross. God in the grave. God raised from the dead. That is the only way and the world is not ready until we know the hopelessness of our situation apart from Christ. So Jesus has come to provide this impossible deliverance. Jesus has come into the world to give Israel and all of mankind life, to heal their inner sickness, to give them sight to see, and to loose their lips to praise God 
and bear him witness. Now we see that this salvation brought by Jesus produces two responses in Israel, just as it will always produce two responses in this fallen world. One response is that of faith, of worship, and of witness. The other response is of hardness, blasphemy, and opposition. We see the first witness in in the people who have come to Jesus and in the crowd. The ruler comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, if you touch my daughter, if you lay your hand on her, she will be healed. He comes to Jesus because he believes, and that's what faith always does. Faith always comes to Jesus. And unbelief always walks away. In your own life, if you find yourself not drawing near to Jesus, your faith is waning because faith always comes to Jesus. The woman with the 12-year flow of blood says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. The two blind men keep crying out, Jesus, son of David. That's a messianic title. That's like saying, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, King, Jesus, Lord. He asks them if they believe. They say that they do. You notice how at the beginning of the Ten Miracles, um, there's a number of them that Jesus works without being asked. He's not dependent on the faith of people. His power is not dependent. But yet in the miracles we have here today, there's this great emphasis on faith. And Jesus placing the emphasis on faith. Because that is the proper response to Jesus. They also believe. And then the crowds believe. They say in verse 33, it was never seen like this in Israel. That's the response of the crowds. It was never seen like this in Israel. Not even in the days of Moses. Not even with the exodus and the turning of the Nile to blood and all of those great miracles. Not even that was like this. Jesus But we see the second response in the Pharisees. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. They harden themselves. They will not see the truth that is right in front of them. They will not respond to them. And so they blaspheme. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Something which doesn't even meet the test of internal logic. As Jesus points out in one of the other Gospels, he said... Look, if Satan is casting out demons, it's kind of like Satan against Satan. It doesn't even make sense. But unbelief does not make sense. They're hardened, they blaspheme, and they begin to oppose Jesus, and they will continue to oppose him until they put him to death. And so we see two stark contrasts in the response to Jesus. Now, this all reconfirms the fact that Israel's biggest enemy is within her midst. At the time of the first century, Israel's biggest enemy, if you had asked, if you took a survey, they would say to you their biggest problem was Rome. These pagans, these unbelievers who don't know God, who have all the power, who are in control, and they impose oppressive taxation And back then, the tax collectors um, worked on commission. (laughs) Kind of a, a, 
It, it was not just a commission. It was a self-paid commission. They didn't just get paid more the more they collected, but they got to keep whatever they collected above and beyond what was really owed, and that's what they did. And so that's what the average Israelite would have said. But Jesus' point to Israel is that her main problems are not out there. Yes, the Roman Empire is a problem, but it is not the problem. The problem is in Israel herself. Now remember that in Exodus, it's Pharaoh, it's his magicians and his advisors, and it's his slave drivers, his taskmasters, whose hearts are hardened, who oppose Moses, and who lay heavy burdens on the people. But in the New Testament, we see this great irony that it's the leadership of Israel, beginning with Herod, the king of the Jews, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And now it's the scribes and the Pharisees who will later join forces with the party of the high priests and the Sadducees, who are the advisors to the king of the Jews. It is all of them who crucify the Son of God. And it is the Pharisees who Jesus says are laying heavy burdens on the people. So all of the Pharaoh-associated powers are within Israel now. Of course, the real power behind Pharaoh and his advisors and his taskmasters is Satan. And the power by which Satan holds Israel and the world in thraldom is the power of death. And the means by which Satan brings us under his power and holds us there is sin. And only Jesus, God in the flesh, God on the cross, God raised from the dead, can break the dark triumvirate of Satan, sin, and death. Now, we will never be in precisely the same situation that Israel was in the first century before Jesus came. Because Jesus has come into the world. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Those are all once for all. That forever changed the world. It forever changed heaven and the earth. And it forever changed history. And so we will never be in exactly the same situation as they were. But that doesn't mean that this passage doesn't have anything to say to the modern church. The first thing it has to say to us is on the human condition. For the four people Jesus heals in our text are a picture of the human condition. Don't let our modern technology and accretion of scientific knowledge fool you. People are exactly the same inside as they were in the first century and as they were in the days of Noah and as they were ever since the fall. People are the same. You know, we can, we can go around, we see all the differences, the differences between us, but the differences are in the details. We have far more similarities than we have differences. And people are the same in every time, in every place, in every circumstance, rich or poor, educated or not educated, popular or not, introverted or extroverted. People are the same. And the Bible teaches us that as a result of Adam's sin, it speaks of the whole human race as being under the dominion of sin and death and also as being under the dominion of Satan. Paul tells us 
that death is the poison that has infected the human race and that sin is the stinger by which it was injected into us. He says the sting of death is sin. He does not say the sting of sin is death, the other way around. Death is the poison that is injected into us and sin is the syringe by which it is injected. And Satan is the one who lied to Adam and Eve to get them to self-inject. That's the only way the poison comes into us, is to the human race from the beginning. It is self-injected. Thus Jesus says that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8. As a result of the dominion of sin and death over us, we are separated from God, and we have an inner hostility toward God. It's not just a matter of separation. It's a matter of separation that we enjoy and want to increase if we possibly can. We have a natural aversion to God's law, so that when we hear His law, it stirs up temptation and willfulness within us. Paul says that when he heard the command, you shall not covet, its effect on him was to produce all sorts of coveting. He used to be a covetous person, but not near so covetous as he was after he heard, Thou shalt not covet. Thus in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the strength of sin is the law. Now Paul isn't saying that if you get rid of the law, you'll get rid of the problem. He is saying that the law shows the iron grip of sin over the human race. In that sin takes something which Paul says is spiritual and holy and righteous and good, namely the law, and sin makes it the effect of that thing to produce even more sin. As a result of this iron grip of sin and death over us, Satan effectively controls the human race. This does not mean that people lack free will or that Satan overrides their will. Sinners make their own decisions for their own reasons. Let me say it again. Sinners make their own decisions for their own reasons. But what it does mean is that it is very easy for Satan to manipulate and effectively control sinners while deluding them that they are in control. In John chapter 13, for example, it says that the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And what that means is that betraying Jesus was Judas' decision. It was also the devil's decision. Judas did his own will. He also did Satan's will. Thus Paul tells Timothy, who was a pastor, to correct those Engage in those who are in opposition with humility. If God may perhaps grant them repentance so that they may come to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So sinners do their own will, but they also do Satan's will. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan blinds us, and we also blind ourselves. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul tells us in Romans 1. 
which means this. We have a truth problem, and this is our truth problem. We don't like it. <laughs> we don't like the truth, and so we stuff it down, and we cover it over, and we explain it away, and we look the other way. As Jesus said in John 3, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. So sin involves self-deception. Along with the poison, it carries with it a hallucinogen that convinces us we are well when we are dying. It convinces us that we can see when we're blind, that we're in charge when we're slaves, that we're on the road to fulfillment and happiness when we're on the road to misery and emptiness. And our self-deception is directly proportional to our self-assurance. Or in modern parlance, self-esteem. We are never so blind as when we are confident in our own opinion and self-sufficient in our own understanding. We are never so enslaved as when we think we're in charge of our own lives. Only Christ... The lesson is the same for us. Only Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can break through this self-deception and slavery. And that's why Paul tells Timothy that when you're witnessing to unbelievers, and especially when you run up against somebody who is hostile, and they're actively opposing God's Word, he tells him, conduct yourself in light of the fact that it's not a matter of out-arguing the other person, because it's not fundamentally a matter of logic and information. It's a matter of God granting them repentance so that they can come to know the truth, that they can come to their senses, that they can escape the snare of the devil who holds them captive to do his will. So what is the challenge for us today as God's people? Peter sums up that challenge. He sums up that duty beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says to us, and so I say to you, you, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's own special, special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our challenge. That is our duty. It is not enough that we have been freed. We're supposed to walk in freedom. It is not enough that we have seen the light. We're supposed to walk in the light. Paul says in Ephesians 5, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It is not enough that we've gone from death to life. We're supposed to walk in life. Paul says in Romans 6, As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so he says this. This is what this means to walk in newness of life. Present yourselves. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. What that means is that you go to God each day each morning when you get up, okay, uh, maybe you have some special time set aside. Maybe you wake up late 
Maybe you have to do this in your car. Maybe you have to do this on your bike. Maybe you have to do this at work in your cubicle. But you present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. You say, Lord, here I am. I come and I worship you. I honor you. Here I am. You've made me alive of Christ. I present myself to you. And you present your members. That means all of your body and all of the aspects of your life, your mind, your spirit, your heart, your emotions, your activities, your stuff, all of it you present to God to be used by Him for righteousness' sake. It's not enough that we have come to know God. We're supposed to walk with God. You see, all these things, all these miracles that God has done for us are beginnings. We're supposed to keep on living in light of them. And we have to remember and be warned that it's possible, while having these things, to not walk in them as we should, which is exactly why the New Testament writers keep saying, walk, you've been brought into the light, walk in light. You've been brought into the life, walk in the life. You know, you've been placed in Christ Jesus, walk in Christ Jesus. It keeps saying that. It's possible to see the light and yet have our eyes grow dim. Isaac and Eli from the Old Testament are examples of believers who saw the light and yet whose eyes grew dim because they were not really walking in the light. With both of them, their dim eyesight was a sign of their dim spiritual sight. Isaac couldn't see that Jacob was the chosen one, not Esau. He couldn't see it because he didn't want to. Eli couldn't see the wickedness of his sons. He could see it, and yet he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it because he didn't want to. Neither was walking in the light the way they should have. It didn't mean that they were no longer God's children. It did mean that they were not serving God and knowing His blessing the way that they should have. They had seen the light, but they weren't walking in the light. It's possible to be set free and, not, and yet not really walk in freedom. To not really know freedom. To begin to turn away from freedom. It's possible to know thankfulness and yet forget thankfulness. To become unthankful. To begin to turn away. An example would be Saul. He began well. He began humble, thankful, and obedient, full of zeal for God. But he didn't continue to walk in those things. He began to become prideful. He began to trust in his own understanding. He began to take charge of his own life. And he began to become disappointed with God. And ultimately he became bitter and sour and an opponent of God's way and God's Christ. It's possible for us to follow in those footsteps. In fact, you, you see it happen a lot. You see it happen a lot. We start out in the Christian life, we're going along in the Christian life, and at some point, we become disappointed. We become disappointed. And you know what it means when we become disappointed. 
we become disappointed with God because all disappointment is ultimately directed toward God. We can be disappointed with another person. We can be disappointed with our circumstances, disappointed with our marriage, disappointed with our children, disappointed with our job. But all disappointment is ultimately directed toward God because we know deep down who's in charge. And it's God. And if we become disappointed, we lose our thankfulness, and we can ultimately become bitter. And bitterness like disappointment is always ultimately directed toward God because we know deep down that He is God, and He is the God of our circumstances. Now, when this happens, what we have to do is to remember what the truth is. Now, this doesn't mean that we're seeking a feeling being a thankful feeling. It doesn't mean that we're seeking a feeling. That's to make a feeling God. That's to create an idol. But what it does mean is when we feel disappointed, we don't feel thankful, we remember what's true. We're not trying to conjure up feelings. We're simply remembering what is true. Here's what I feel. In other words, we're not stepping toward making feelings an idol. We're stepping away from that. We're saying, my feelings aren't going to rule me because here's the truth out here. What in fact, what in truth has God done for me through Christ? God has delivered me. God has forgiven my sins. God has promised that in the ages to come, He's going to show the riches of His kindness toward me in Christ Jesus in ways that I cannot even imagine. And there is nobody and nothing who can take that away from me. Nobody can take that away. And nobody can take it away from you. That's the truth. If nothing else is truth, if we do nothing but suffer the rest of our lives, that truth cannot be changed. That truth cannot be changed. And that is something to be thankful for. But in addition to that, the vast majority of us, I mean, look around. The freedoms that we enjoy in this country, yes, I know all the problems with this country, but the freedoms that we enjoy here are the envy of the world and the envy of the historical world. The technologies and the conveniences that we enjoy are things that Solomon would have traded his kingdom for. We have all of these things. We have money. We have houses. We have cars. We have hot running water in the house. We have toilets. We have toothbrushes. We have toothpaste. We have deodorant. We have, we have food that comes from all over the world. You can just go down the block and buy just stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. And we have golf clubs. And we have footballs and baseballs and sports and ice skates and skis and snowboards. And we have games and we have TVs and we have movies and we just, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, how bad can it be? How bad can it be? We have so much to be thankful for and we're supposed to be characterized by that. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. And what's the next thing he says? Be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What that means is that even when a hardship comes into our life, an affliction, a hardship, something unpleasant, something we don't like, something we'd like to snap our finger and change, even in that, he says, you give thanks. That's what faith does. It comes to God through Christ and it gives thanks because it believes that God is in control of this world and that God is working all things for our good. So everything that comes into our life, just like Joseph What did Joseph tell his brothers? You intended it for evil. I know you talked about killing me. Then you decided to be nice and just sell me as a slave to a bunch of pagans. I know that. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. That's what faith does. And so we turn to God and we give thanks because that is the only logical response to what is true. What is true. And so we give thanks. And then the funny thing that happens is that when we give thanks, God causes us to become thankful. Our feelings come around. So our feelings are not our first focus. First focus is what is true, and I'm going to act according to what is true. And then God brings our feelings around. It changes our disposition. We become a joyful people. We become a humble people. And we become a people who are ready to give praise to God and ready to witness because the two things go together. The two things go together, just as we saw on the day of Pentecost. So us being thankful, us giving thanks to God, us thanking God for all things is not something separate from us witnessing for Jesus to unbelievers. We're not, no matter what we may say to unbelievers, We're not witnessing to them if we're not a thankful people who are thanking God for all things that are happening in our lives. The very thing that can break through, that God can use to break through to that unbeliever you may be talking to, may be the fact that you're going through some tremendously hard and unpleasant circumstance right now in your life, but you remain thankful, and that's what that person sees. That's what authenticates what you say. So us being thankful, rejoicing, being a humble and a loving people, uh, not being a disappointed, sour people, this is an integral part of witness. All witness means is that you take your thanks from here and you take it out there. That's all witnessing is. You take your thanks and you go out and you live and you let people see that. That's all that it means. So let us close then, remembering again Peter's words to us. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.